Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to Changes. It is Annie McManus here, delighted to be back with you, bringing you a whole range of conversations all about change. At a time of year, of course, where that word change is so pervasive in our discourse. It's all we're thinking about. How can we change our lives for the better? Maybe that is something very small, like just cutting out meat for the month. Or maybe it's something much bigger than that, like, you know, leaving a relationship, moving countries. This is a time where it's impossible not to kind of stop and look at your life and think, is everything okay? Does anything need to change? Well, no better podcast to be listening to than Changes, where we like to explore those stories of change, how people navigate change, how people choose it, seize it, embrace it, or navigate ourselves through it and get out the other side. We're kicking off the new series with a woman who was an incredibly famous actress, a child actress. She worked from the age of six, starred on Nickelodeon's iCarly and later did a show called Sam and Cat, co-starring with Ariana Grande just before Ariana Grande became the pop star. She also had a brief stint performing country music, releasing two EPs and an album. However, despite appearances of a successful and happy life, Her reality as a child and as a young woman was very, very different. Her name is Jeanette McCurdy and last year she released a memoir called I'm Glad My Mum Died. Now, you've probably heard about this book if you're in any way into reading or even if you've just been in a bookshop. It will have been in the window or on the front display. It's one of those books that's been everywhere for the last year. It became a number one New York Times bestseller, sold out within 24 hours of going on sale and was cited one of the best books of 2022 by such a huge list of publications and platforms that I couldn't read it out, but I'll give you some highlights. Time magazine, Goodreads, Glamour, Barnes and Noble, Audible, Amazon, it goes on. So suffice to say, this book has been huge. In the book, Jeanette gives a very detailed account of her childhood and specifically her relationship with her mother, who was obsessed with Jeanette becoming famous. The book details so many examples of Jeanette's mum's unbearable controlling behaviour, including putting Jeanette on a calorie-restricted diet from the age of 11, giving her extensive makeovers like teeth whitening to try and keep her looking as young as possible, and insisting on showering her until she was 16. There was also the problems that came with being a child star, of course, and being forced to go through gruelling auditions. Jeanette grew up in a Mormon family with three brothers. She was homeschooled. She had very, very few friends. But the way she talks about her experience in the book is not kind of tugging at your heartstrings, anything but, actually. It's all done through the prism of kind of humour and this very visceral narrative voice, which we will discuss. As you can imagine, the book has changed her life. And on top of that, the book has helped so many other people recognise abuse in their own lives. 
Don't feel like you have to have read this book to enjoy this conversation. Jeanette's story, which she will bring us through, is mesmerising, whether you've read the book or not. But I do urge you to go and get your hands on this book as soon as you've listened to it, because you won't regret it. For now, I am thrilled to welcome to Changes, Jeanette McCurdy. Jeanette, hello. Thank you for being here with us on Changes. It's such a pleasure to have some time with you. I'm so excited to be here. I'm a big fan of the podcast and um, how you conduct and approach your um, interviews. Oh, amazing. Thank you. So how are you, firstly? I'm good. I just got back from, um, I've been doing a college tour, speaking at some colleges, and I just got back from Rhode Island. So you're traveling, you're talking about the book, and it's literally everywhere. How do you feel about its huge success? I'm so grateful. There's nothing I can say that doesn't sound like a canned response. I never imagined in my wildest dreams that it would have this kind of a reaction. But it also must be like the context of the success is you being wholly yourself and sharing some really uncomfortable truths and kind of like putting everything on the page, all your shame, all your guilt, all, all the, the reality of what's happened to you. And for the story to resonate so much, that aspect of it must make the gratitude even more intense? Yes, and also I have to say there was so much doubt about the the book going in, like, you know, sending it to so many different publishers and most people passing, people saying you can't title a book that, you can never, you, and, and what you are you thinking? And you always wanted to title it that from the start, was it always that? It, it always had to be that. Called, right? it, it had to be that. Um, it had and to why be that. did it I just, have to be that? It, it, it's so true to me and it's so, um, I, I'm, a, I, you know, I'm aware that it's attention grabbing, but I felt like it was sort of a really bold statement that I then felt like I backed up in the book. Sure. Um, also I, you know, I, I didn't want what I judge as like kind of just a really like solemn memoir title. I didn't want to be like the tears of my mother or like something like, okay, calm down. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm not going to do that. It had to be a title that had some, a sense of humor to it. Yeah. To me, it had to really represent the book in a, in a way. And, um, and it was the only, the only title that ever made sense to me. We would like to talk about the book, obviously, and your life through the prism of change. And we always ask three kind of foundational questions in these episodes. If you don't mind, we, we will start with the childhood one. So Looking back at your childhood, what was the biggest change that you think you went through? So I've thought a lot about these questions, but the thing that was really coming to mind for me about childhood was puberty and specifically um, the onset of an, of an eating disorder when I was 11, right at that age when a lot of my friends were starting to enter puberty and um, sort of my really, really intense resistance toward it. It wasn't, it, it, it didn't feel to me like, you know, in retrospect, it doesn't feel to me like it was just sort of that normal kind of fear of change and fear of growing up and, you know, loss of innocence and all of that. It was like a very intensely motivated refusal to hit puberty. I'm expressing it that way because it was such a resistance to change. It was like yeah, I literally yeah. couldn't handle the idea of the changes that were coming at me and that were inevitable. And I went to great lengths to avoid them. Yeah. And your mother assisted you in those of which you speak of in the book. Let's rewind a little bit then to kind of just the lead up to that. Paint us a picture, if you don't mind, of the house. Who lived there, your childhood home? And what was it like there? 
Yeah, I grew up in a in a town called Garden Grove, California, affectionately referred to by its inhabitants as Garbage Grove. Um, <laughs> so hopefully it gives you a, a picture of like how fondly we cared about it. It was a twelve hundred square foot home. Um, my mom and my dad lived there. My grandma and my grandpa on my mother's side also lived with us. Um, and they had moved in when my mom was actually first diagnosed with cancer when I was two years old. So they moved into the home then to kind of help out. And then they just never moved out because it just kind of worked better for everyone. We really couldn't afford the rent. So it was, everybody was kind of chipping in. And my three older brothers, Marcus, Dustin, and Scotty, and all of us were in that little cramped 1200 square foot house. And to make it even more cramped, um, my mom was a hoarder. She had OCD. And one of the manifestations of OCD, as I understand it, is that hoarding can be can be kind of a version. It's really interesting to me the different ways that OCD manifests, and it's something that I have definitely certainly struggled with and still experience um, in sort of more stressful times in my life. My brothers have experienced it, and my mom as well. Um, and her manifestation was hoarding. So I'm talking like floor to ceiling, like couldn't see a, a, an inch of wall um, if you're looking around the room. You know, at one point we had a a dining table and it was just filled with shit all the way up to the up, up you know nearly scraping the ceiling so that we didn't we didn't have a table to sit at so we 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 sat and ate on these little we called it the white thing and it was a trifold mat that just kind of unfolded and we just set that on the floor and put our put our cereal bowls or whatever on that mat um and we didn't have room for beds so we slept on more mats we had a lot of mats in our house so we slept on um what, like those gymnastics mats yeah. that fold out that you can you get for kids to to do the old flips on or whatever um so my brothers and I slept on those and you know ate on mats slept on mats and then just had kind of shit everywhere in the house it felt pretty claustrophobic you know it really felt like I I didn't like the feeling that I got in in that house every time I stepped foot in it I felt I became smaller I became more just fearful and it, it was overwhelming honestly to just be surrounded by so much stuff yeah yeah and then how did your mother fill the house well emotionally she 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 took up all that space she was a person who didn't work on herself or her issues and really refused to and so she she didn't do the work so the but the emotions were still there the intensity was still there so they were just coming out all the time you know she was very erratic very unstable everything from chasing my dad around the house with a with a giant you know kitchen knife to kicking in a cupboard door till the wood splintered and poked out and, you know, caused her ankle to bleed. And then she immediately blames it on somebody else, even though she's clearly the one who just kicked in the cupboard door. It's, it's Mark, why'd you make me do that? Her, her husband, my dad. Mm. Um, so emotionally, I did not feel that there was space for me. I really felt that it was my job and my responsibility to curate my mom's emotions, to help regulate her um, which then led to a lot of emotional issues for me in adulthood because I had just years of, you know, decades, really, two decades of suppressed emotions, and that kind of became an extra hurdle to overcome in adulthood, which, as I've been speaking at these colleges, actually, I've realized that's a really common thread for people who grow up in dysfunctional or abusive, chaotic environments is that instinct to regulate your parent and then yeah. coming into adulthood and realizing, oh, my God, now I don't know how to regulate myself because all of my efforts were spent on somebody else. And now sure. here's me. I'm confronted with the reality of me. And that is daunting in itself. Yeah. The book is written so, so brilliantly. You're so, it's so immersive because of the way that you write that, you know, it's, it's written from first person perspective. It's written from the perspective of who you are at that age. So 
you know, you're you're learning about your life and your surroundings, you know, from a six year old. We hear about that from your kind of very innocent and, you know, quite pure outlook on what that was. Um, It's so interesting. And we can talk about this later. This idea of change for you, your entire viewpoint of what your life was, you then had to change. You had to turn upside down as an adult and look at it completely afresh. That must have been such a huge upheaval in terms of your sense of identity and of who you were all the way up to that point. You know, it really was. It my um my whole life, my whole perspective, my whole every decision I made was really filtered through the perspective of that my mom wanted what was best for me, that I needed to do what my mom wanted to make her happy. It wasn't, you know, even you mentioned earlier sort of that she had she had had a hand in eating disorders and she, she, she explicitly taught me calorie restriction when I was 11 years old and, um, and really, you know, measured out my food, counted my calories, measured my thighs, weighed me on a scale. Like she was, was in control of my, of my body to the point that I wasn't thinking like, Oh, what do I want to eat? What do I want to do today? It was like, what was, would mom want me to eat? What would mom want me to wear? What would mom want me to say? How would mom want me to do this role on this television show? Like it was, everything was kind of, filtered through that lens. So to then come to the very uncomfortable reality that my mom was abusive, which was first explained to me by a therapist who I then quit because I couldn't tolerate that idea at all. Just right. the yeah. the idea was just impossible. I, I couldn't face it, um, that my mom was abusive. But um, after about a year and a half, I then returned to therapy and started kind of doing the work to accept that reality and whatever that entailed. And it was truly, I mean, the most intimidating aspect of my life and absolutely the one that created the most change in me because I had been one person skewed one way for one reason to please my mom and then realizing oh she's abusive then it's like oh so I guess I should try and please myself and do things for myself and live my own life for me but what does that even mean? That was, hmm. I was so codependent, so enmeshed with my mom that I had really no semblance of an identity as I see it outside of her and the identity that I, that she wanted for me. Um, so then I was kind of met with that, those overwhelming questions at, at 21 after she died. Just talking about what she wanted for you then. So when you were six, she kind of told you that she wanted you to be an actress. Is that right? And, and that was the kind of beginning of this journey of you being a child actor. Yeah. So she had always dreamt of being an actress herself. My mom had. Um, her parents wouldn't let her. But she had always sworn that she dated uh, Chris Knight, who plays Peter Brady in The Brady Bunch. She, was, right. she said that they had like this long relationship and that he adored her. Like, I haven't seen one picture of them together, so uh, right. I have my doubts. She stalked Donny Osmond. Like, she waited outside of Donny Osmond's house um, for him to, like, come out so she could just, like, you know, see him in, his, in all his glory, in his Donny Osmond shiny teeth glory. Um, so she was really, you know, obsessed with fame. I've even heard from a few family, um, you know, members since I've been grown and kind of tried to just have more conversations about her. This is, you know, in the, few, in the first few years after her passing it really became clear to me how obsessed with fame she had been for her entire life. There was something about it that she thought she was born for it. She thought she was destined for it. And if it wasn't going to be her, it was going to be someone close to her, whether that's who she married or, in right. her case, her daughter. Um, and and I've also wondered, you know, why, why 
was it me that she that she really really put her dreams on instead of my brothers and I think it's a few things I think it's I'm the only girl I think there's right. there's an element that's just as simple as that so she saw more of herself in me and I also think that I was just wired to really really do what she wanted to do you know I wasn't a rebellious kid at all I was really really fixated on making her happy maybe partially because she was first diagnosed with cancer when I was two years old so those very early memories were just a longing for my mom that I think Mm. once she overcame that cancer the first time and I had her I think I was just so obsessed with her I mean this is a presence that hadn't been in my life in those key years and then I had her and I had a mom and I think I just wanted to keep her honestly I just wanted to keep her and I'd do whatever that meant um even if it was as I now see it you know a neglect completely neglecting myself so she signed you up for dance classes 14 a week there was regular grooming where you had to have your teeth whitened your lashes tinted um like, can you remember a point in your childhood where you realized that you guys were not the same as other girls around you? Because you were homeschooled, too. So you obviously didn't have that much like exposure to other girls or other other people your age. Yeah, homeschooled and also Mormon, which has another layer of just kind of suppression and secretiveness. Right. Um, but I do remember at auditions there seemed to be a different dynamic between my mom and I than other girls. You know, my mom would brush my hair really obsessively. She had a thing where she was obsessed with hair, I think because she lost hers with the cancer and she was constantly talking about Uh that. So she was just fixated and would, would just, you know, I'd be trying to practice my lines for without a trace or whatever. And like trying to get in the mood for this serious character. And my mom's just sitting there, brush, 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 brush. Um, And, you know, she'd, the kind who she would like press her ear against the door to try and hear what was, how the audition was going. So I'd like, I'd open the door afterward and she'd like stumble backward. (laughs) I realized like, oh God, mom was listening. Um, there was, there seemed to be more of an intensity to her. And I certainly saw a fair share of stage moms, but, um, but my mom was definitely a heightened one for sure. (laughs) Like very, very heightened. Um, yeah, I, I remember there there were other girls who could just kind of like go and their moms wait in the cars in some cases and, and the girls would just kind of go do their audition and go out and they seemed so much less stressed. I definitely right. remember there were a couple of girls who did not, they seemed like they enjoyed it. They seemed like they would just kind of like waltz in and be like, hey, Lacey, to the casting director and then like start their lines. And I thought like, that seems like who should be doing this. They're comfortable. They like this. They're not a nervous wreck like I am over here peeing 15 times before the audition. Yeah. Um I definitely started picking picking up on that, but I shoved it all down, um, which I think is pretty common for kids where it's just like, oh, I don't, that's, yeah, I can't, sure. I don't know how to unpack that. Like, I'm not going to unpack that at all. I'm just going to keep clinging to this reality, which is mom's good, mom's great, and that's what I did. And then there was the kind of reality of auditioning at a young age. So again, there's so, there's so much that's just casually so shocking about just the world that you're in, that your world that you're occupying as a child, the roles that you're auditioning for, like you know, a child being murdered or someone witnessing someone being murdered. It's just, just casual. Yes, so today I'm, I was auditioning for this. You're like, what? Why are yes. you? Because you had the crying on command. Yeah. yeah. If you had the to be sobbing and dealing with like a tra- a profound loss, I was like, I'm a shoe in I'm going to get this. <laughs> I got this. Yeah. Parents dying, like same time. Cool. I got it. Yeah. Yeah. But also like, how did you, and you know, you talk about the kind of pushing everything down, um, was that the same with when you were rejected for auditions? Because I can imagine that that's very hard as a child to know how to separate the rejection of being rejected from an audition or just yourself being rejected, not feeling like you're good enough for those people. 
Oh, I'm so glad you bring attention to this because that's something that I really think, you know, I really think um, was damaging for me. And when I think of, of how, you know, a lot of people talk about, well, oh, fame is, a, is, a, is such a privilege and, you know, they, it's sort of touted as this thing that's so glorious and romanticized and, and whatever. But I think certainly, you know, financially it can be a privilege. Psychologically, I do not think fame, I do not think show business is a privilege. I think it makes things a lot more difficult, or it certainly did. I can only speak for myself. It did for me. Um, and yeah. certainly in childhood, there were just these elements that I didn't know how to um, differentiate from. I, you know, it was impossible for me. I was six. How could I, how could I know that when I didn't get a part, it wasn't just me as a person, that it was, I was three inches too short or or for whatever reason, they needed a girl missing her front tooth. Like how I could, I couldn't separate that. So I just thought, oh, I'm not good enough. And I think that really instilled in me from an early, early age, this like deep pattern of believing that I'm not good enough, believing that I need to prove myself. And that's something that I have, you know, explored in therapy for, for years and years and years. And, um, and, you know, I feel like I've made a, a lot of progress there, but it's still kind of one of, if I'm being honest, it's one of my natural instincts it's one of my go-tos is believing that I need to prove myself believing I need to you know beat down every door and fight for every opportunity and you know because I'm not good enough as I am so I just need to keep you know like that is Mm. just something that was created in me when I was six and and anything that's created in you when you're six is going to be hard to to undo absolutely yeah and your mom didn't help that either because she was kind of you know not really making you feel better, it seemed, from the book, when no. you were rejected. Well, so I don't think she knew. Now, now I, I she just She felt rejected think... too, probably. Yes, yes. yes. Because she, so yes. she couldn't differentiate between myself and her. She thought we were yeah. one of the same. And yeah. so I think that the rejection, she took it, 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 you hit the nail on the head. I think she literally thought that she was being rejected and I was being rejected and she couldn't find reasons. So she couldn't comfort or validate me in any way because she's sitting there feeling it herself, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's wild. What was going on around you then at home? Like, what were your brothers doing then? Your dad, your grandparents. Did anyone notice that there was this kind of closeness that could have been, you know, unhealthy at the time? Brothers were playing a lot of video games. Really, to me, that seemed like their kind of way of escape. Just they're going right. to put their heads down, play their video games and not have to deal with any of this. I think everybody had their their, their escape mechanisms for sure. Um I think, you know, so my dad worked two jobs, he worked at Home Depot and Hollywood Video, so he was just very, very busy, overworked, yeah. tired, and also my judgment of him is, you know, not the most emotionally deep or in tune person, so I don't, I just think there were things happening that he either couldn't pick up on or was scared of facing. He did try at times to, to he would tell my mom, you know, if she's in the middle of chasing him with a kitchen knife, he would tell her, Deb, you need help, you need to get help. Um, you can't do this to your family. You can't do the kids can't be around this. And she'd just scream, "You need help!" So she just she she couldn't see that she had flaws, um, and, yeah. and she would retaliate when someone suggested that she did. So I think it just created this environment where nobody wanted to call her out on anything because everyone was scared of her. It really felt like walking on eggshells all the time. Um, and I think you know my grandpa did. I, I, have, I have such a special place in my heart for my grandpa, but he. I think just felt the same way where he, he would, he would say that often to her, you need help and, and would be met with the same kind of reactions that she had with my dad. So I think people just kind of at some point gave up, you know, didn't know what to do, just felt like, um, felt the fear of her wrath, which is, it is so, kind of funny. She was 4'11", a tiniest little spitfire of a person, but she was the, when I say the scariest person I've ever met, I really mean like she, there was a fear that I had in me toward her that I couldn't identify for a long time, but that was the biggest fear I think I've known. 
Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Tell me about when you sat in the back of the car and told her that you didn't think you wanted to act anymore. Yeah, it was. I had had this one audition, and it was one of those crying on cue type of auditions that you had mentioned. And I think there was a part of me that just knew at that point. You know, I'd been doing it for a while, and I was just exhausted. I was just tired. And I and I I think, you know, the part of me that usually was able to cry on cue was was kind of saying like, No, we're not. I can't do this anymore. Like it was just a, almost a physical, a visceral reaction in my body that was just like refusing to do it. So it kind of just, you know, came out of me. I didn't, it, it, it just spilled out of me like, mom, I don't want to do this anymore. She was driving. Uh, we were going on our way home from, from that audition. She was driving. She became hysterical, um, you know, screaming and, and crying and, and wild kind of gestures with her hands leaving the steering wheel and merging and, you know, really dangerous uh, reaction on that on the freeway. And I realized immediately, oh, that's not something that we say. We, I, we don't say that we want to quit acting. We just keep acting. We just because this is what it, it yields. It yields a literal life threatening, you know, situation. Um, mm. So then I, 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 I didn't bring it up anymore, even though I still I, I felt it a lot. You know, I felt it quite often, I would say. Yeah. And there was a keenness from your mom to infantilize you, to kind of keep you young. Tell me how that was kind of manifested. And and again, when you realized that maybe something wasn't OK about that. God, I'm glad you're bringing this up because this is something that feels really kind of it's deep rooted for me. And I, I don't even think I've fully processed it in, in, in therapy or anything like that. But um, mm. she really, really, really wanted to keep me um, young. And she did actually with one of my other brothers as well. And why? So my two older brothers were sort of allowed to grow up, you know, they were allowed to kind of be age appropriate. And for my brother Scott and myself, we were completely infantilized and completely, I, I, I of course, I didn't know what was happening at the time. So yeah. eventually, you know, I, 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 I get cast on this, on this Nickelodeon show when I'm 14. And that's when I'm really, because all the roles that I had done beforehand were really on adult shows. So it was, I was a kid in an adult environment. Um, so as, as I guess precocious as I could kind of pretend to be in those moments, it really, I wasn't aware of what was age appropriate because I wasn't exposed to people my age. And in church, the, the interactions are so limited. And in dance, you're yeah. doing your dance classes. Um, although I did start having kind of inklings of, of the discrepancy between me and other people my age in dance um, when the girls started kind of getting boyfriends and they started getting training bras. And 
I just remember thinking like I wouldn't even entertain the idea of a boyfriend or a training broad that those are just things that I was never going to have. Those are things that would lead me to my downfall. Um, you know, as, as my mom would often tell me, she'd say, you know, boys will ruin your life, but you should focus on your career. Um, and right. the younger you look, the more acting roles you'll book. So I had these messages of like, okay, I need to stay young. But then when I got, I got cast on a Nickelodeon show, I was around people my age and it started becoming a bit clearer to me of, oh, they're going to, you know, go, they, they walk next door to get, to pick up their takeout from a restaurant and then they walk back with it or they're listening to songs that say shit in them. And, you know, these Katy Perry songs, and these Avril Lavigne songs, which for me were very edgy. I mean, should tell you all you need to know about how young I was from my age. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know. I, I didn't know how to kind of close that gap at all because I felt that any attempt that I made to grow up was a complete betrayal to my mom. I felt like any step that I made in the direction of me becoming age appropriate was was me just, you know, slapping my mom in the face. I felt like I couldn't do it. So you went to her um, when you felt like you were kind of your body was changing and you went, you were kind of like, I don't want to do this. And she was very happy to assist. Yes. So, so this, this, um, this kind of moment in life that, that you're referring to happened, this is a couple years prior to getting the, the role in Nickelodeon show. I was 11 years old. I felt a, a, a lump in a, in my right breast and, yeah. um, I, I thought it was cancer. I, I was scared that it was cancer. So I, I went to my mom and I told her, and she expressed, no, it's just you're developing boobies. And I said, well, I don't want boobies. I absolutely don't want boobies. And I remember her, her devastation at the idea of me getting boobies. Like I could just feel her disappointment or like just radiating off of her. I said, well, I don't want boobies. What do I have to do to, to stop the boobs from coming in? She said, well, there's a thing called calorie restriction. And that was the day that uh, that addiction started for me, that that obsession fixation started for me. And I, I mean, it did not go away. It had, I had several different eating disorders, anorexia, binge eating and, and bulimia, but it lasted for, you know, a, over a decade of my life. But, um, but my mom directly yeah, taught me what calorie restriction was, taught me, you know, diet, what diuretics were and or the types of food, you know, let's get you, let's drink black coffee because that will, that's a, um, good for your metabolism and, and cayenne peppers and bell peppers and like the types of foods that I should eat, the types of foods that were bad to eat. Um, she had me on a, on a 1200 calorie a day meal, meal plan, which then got limited to a thousand calories a day. I mean, as a growing child, um, it was, it was the first thing I thought of when I woke up and the last thing I thought about before I went to sleep, like it was an obsession that she helped with. And you were 11, 11 years old. Yeah. And I just, and I really didn't, um, of course, I didn't know that it was a disorder. I didn't know that it was, that what was happening was abuse. I didn't know that what I was experiencing sure. was an eating disorder because it was so, it was a bonding tool for my mom and I. It was like a thing that we talked about giddily. Like, what'd you eat today? Oh, you didn't do that. Me neither. Oh, let's both skip on that. Like it was like a shared secret between friends. It was so sick and twisted as I see it now. But at the time it really just felt like, Ooh, like this is so exciting. We're in this together. Like, yippee, you know, it was yeah. really, 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 I, I, I liked it at the time. So this is going on in the background. Then you, you, you know, you, you go through puberty, you get this show on Nickelodeon, which, which makes you really famous. Um, there's a quote here from an interview you did that I thought was so powerful. You said, I think fame was the first thing that really conveyed to my mom that she and I were separate people. We were so enmeshed. And I think she really saw her identity in me. So how did that fame change your relationship with you and your mom? 
it was the thing that I thought she had wanted for so long. And then, yeah, as you mentioned, it was the thing that, that I think led her to realize that we weren't the same person. So because we had been so enmeshed, um, and I forget how you sort of phrased it earlier, but it was so well said where it was just like, she took my, any, any rejection I got as an acting role as her own because she couldn't differentiate between the two of us. Fame was the first thing that I think led her to realize that we weren't the same person because suddenly I'm getting approached all the time. No one's asking mom for a picture. Everyone's mm-hmm. asking me for a picture. Everyone's, you know, people bombard me. Like it got to the point where it was, it was so stressful. Um, just leaving the house became like, I don't, I didn't want to do that anymore because it was so overwhelming. I was a really anxious person. I didn't know how to handle the attention. I, I had no boundaries, so I didn't know how to give people what they wanted while also giving myself what I wanted because I couldn't figure out what that was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I remember it was so bizarre because it was the thing that truly I thought would make her happy. I thought like when I got that show, I thought like mom's dream has come true. She's going to be satisfied now. And then to watch her become completely jealous of me was so confusing because I was thinking, well, this is what you wanted. This is your dream. Why now does it feel like you hate me for having this thing that you'd wanted me to have for so long? Um, you know, and she'd, she'd scream and say like, I'm going to make a vine too. I'm going to have fans. My fans are going to love me. Like just so angry about that. She didn't, I guess, have the fame. Um, and so I think, I think that, that late added another, if there weren't already enough complicated layers, it added another <laughs> complicated layer to our dynamic where it's like, there was this confusion of, of, okay, so she's now mad at me for having the thing that she wanted me to have, but also wants me to have more of it. She, yeah. she was, she always wanted me to have more fame, but also wanted it herself. So it was completely envious that I had it. And I didn't know how, I didn't know what, how to navigate that. I literally felt like there was nothing I could do to win. Like there was, there was nothing I could do to, sure. to win her love, to win her affection, to, to win her, you know, her stable, consistent love. It was always like, I didn't know what I'd done to upset her until she would express as much in one of her kind of fits and then I'd try and piece it together but I could never there was no formula like I could never get it right yeah I mean it's not surprising that you were an anxious child yes it's just it's this constant sense of kind of fight or flight yes you know just like constant fear yes of of not getting it right absolutely yeah it it led to a very uh, hyper vigilant nervous system that yeah. I, I'm only just now, I think, calming it a bit and, and that, well, not always calming it. I'm drinking coffee right now. That's not helping. But generally, I work on calming it. <laughs> it seems very important part of your life where, I mean, just as an aside for anyone who hasn't read the book, there was a moment where you pursued a music career, a country music career, and you were properly recording albums, spending time in Nashville with songwriters, blah, 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 blah. But your mother's cancer came back when you were 18 which meant that she was too sick to go on this tour with you. And you had to go on this tour, this music tour alone. How did that change you, that tour? That time in my life felt like the most, maybe the most pivotal, um, in that I was just getting to that point. Because at, at this point, I had been you know, experiencing fame. I'd been on TV for several years. Um, I was dealing with my mom's sort of anger and jealousy toward that. 
and um and also my body at that point was was finally really developing i got my period when i was 16 i got an onset i was 16 years old um and then you know i went back to anorexia because i didn't want to get another period so i was i was really trying but my body was like finally saying like i am going to develop whether you like it or not i'm gonna grow up my body was was making the calls for me um and so I was, I had gotten to this place where I was finally feeling like I wanted to rebel against my mom. I wanted to figure out who I was. <clears throat> I wanted to fucking kiss a guy. Like I wanted to just have normal experiences that people my age had. Um, I really wanted to feel my age and that's when my mom got the cancer again. So then it made it so that I felt guilty again you know, I was fine. I was like putting on the, the big girl pants and being like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to be my own person. And then she gets cancer. So then it just roped me right back into the dynamic. Yeah. Um, but one piece that I do see as being honestly just really, really useful and really kind of integral. I think I needed that was that she wasn't able to be such a presence in my life anymore. You know, she'd have chemo sessions, so couldn't physically be on set because she'd need to be at chemo. As you mentioned, she couldn't go on this, this, this tour with yeah. me for music and I, I felt relief and I felt really, really, really guilty that I felt that relief because I, you know, I, I thought, well, I, that this makes me a terrible person. I love my mom. How can I be feeling like glad that she's not with me when she's dying? Like how this is, I must be evil. I must be terrible. Um, and as challenging as it was kind of psychologically, also just having the space from her, I felt like I could breathe. Um, that was really the first time in my life that I started, you know, eating normally and then that led yeah. to binge eating because my body again was going I'm done with fucking restricting I'm gonna eat and I'm gonna eat everything I want all the fucking time and it became like a lustful activity for me everything yeah. felt kind of dangerous even though it's you know it's eating or like my first kiss in a Hampton Inn and sweet like I wasn't doing cocaine or you know yeah. getting crazy I don't know what the edgiest drug is I don't even see I don't know that what's yeah. the edgiest drug I don't even know. I don't even. Shooting heroin. I wasn't shooting heroin. heroin. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't shooting heroin, but I felt like I was. Like there was a part of me that felt like, yeah, like I'm eating a Pop-Tart. I'm edgy. Yeah. Um, and and I think I really, really needed that. It was when I was first starting to kind of come into my own as weird in as weird of a way as it was. Like it, I think it literally took her starting to die for me to start becoming myself. So she died in 2013. You were 21 years old. Would you say that's the biggest change that you went through in your adult life? I would say accepting that she was abusive was the biggest change. I think after she died, I was still so clinging to that narrative that she wanted what was best for me, that my mom was good, that she just yeah. tried her best. All the narratives that everybody tells you um, of like, Oh, you know, well, mothers know best and they just try so hard and I'm sure they love you. Like all those things I was telling myself and, um, I didn't realize it, but completely gaslighting the reality of the situation, completely gaslighting my own experience of abuse and, and invalidating my own emotional experience by doing that. And, um, but I didn't know that. So I was still clinging to that. And then I would say the biggest change was finally accepting, Oh, she was abusive and I'm going to, it's going to be a lot of work. I'm going to have to, you know, reorient myself to this new life and this in this um this reality of what my life has been but um it was it was work that I think was was as as difficult as it was really 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 worth it 
you you quit acting i think uh, in 2017 so four years after she died was that part of the recovery process for you 1000% um acting had really been the entirety of my identity it was the area where i felt like i was it made me feel worth something like i felt completely worthless without it i felt like if i booked a role i could make mom happy if i didn't she was devastated depressed like she wouldn't get out of bed it was just it it felt like her her happiness and her love for me hinged on me booking roles um and then of course experiencing fame and then being known in the public eye for this thing it just kind of it it kind of compounded that so i felt like i i needed to not act um in order to figure out who i was without acting i mean i'd been doing it since i was six. i didn't have memories not acting not trying not fighting for a role not you know that thing of proving myself yeah. like i didn't know what that looked like and i felt like i needed to find out but it took several years because I didn't, I felt so scared of, of leaving it behind. Um, and of course, really well-meaning um, friends and family with, with reasonable advice would say, don't throw this away. You have got to be out of your mind to throw this away. This is, you're making a living at something that's so hard to make a living at. Like, mm. why would you do this? You're so young. Like, you've got years ahead of you. Just do it for a couple more years. Just like collect as much as you can. And then if something doesn't pan out, then let it go then. And I'm like... I, it was another one of those experiences and I'm, and I'm just realizing now, honestly, in our conversation, how much it was like my body got to a point where it was making the choice for me, where it's like, I couldn't convince myself anymore that something was right when it was wrong. Cause my body was saying, Nope, I'm done. And um, how was your body saying no? Like my manager would send me, you know, an, a, an audition and I just, I, I'd say like, okay, I'll, I'll do this. And, and, um, and then I just couldn't, couldn't bring myself to um or I had been offered a role for a thing that seemed like you know by every definition like a, a good opportunity and seemed like something that I should do and the idea of like waking up going to a sitcom set and being like honey like what are we doing like whatever however the sitcom like voice and like bobbing in and just being so fake I felt like I couldn't do it anymore I was at a place in my life where there was so much pain and so much reality that was like bubbling into to the surface at the same time that I felt like I couldn't just be like sitcom girl anymore I just couldn't do it um and and the reality of looking at an offer that seemed good that seemed like I should do it and tears streaming down my face of being like but I cannot do this um it, it that's what I think of as like my body refusing to refusing to do it anymore every part of me logically is going this makes sense you should do this don't be crazy don't make yeah. a bad decision don't throw away your career don't throw away your life and my body's like sobbing you know like yeah. that's yeah. the that's the difference and then a few years later you you start doing this one woman show where you talk about um your story and I'm really interested in this transition this realization that you can harness all of this mind fuckery that you've been through in your whole life and you can use the public that you've been thrust in front of and you can turn this situation around so that you have agency for the first time in your life you have control you are telling your own story in a way that you want to and people are going to want to hear the truth of what happened to you that whole transition, that whole change of viewpoint, was there a catalyst there? Was there a moment there where you, where, that you remember where you're like, okay, I can, I, can, I can tell my story and it can be maybe healing for me? Mm. 
it just sort of came out of me and I from all the friends that I've spoken with who have either you know written memoirs or something that's sort of uh, creatively exploring a, a, a some aspect of their personal life um, it sounds kind of like a, a like a I guess a pretty common experience but it just felt like it 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 needed to come out I guess it needed to kind of there was some part of me that needed for it to come out and I remember just I wrote so the one person show I wrote pretty quickly like that first drafts always come quickly for me and then it's like the work comes after that you know yeah when I I I wrote all that and then I'd actually ask my friends to I texted one friend specifically being like here's my idea for it I've written this thing will you give it a read and I'd like for you and like four other friends to go up each night and like perform the thing but wearing you know I the sort of I had like a very specific hairdo on the Nickelodeon shows and I wanted each person to wear like a wig of that hairdo for the shows. Um, And my friend very candidly told me that's a terrible idea. Like we're not performing your show. That's uh, like, I I love you, but that's bad. Like that's trash. You need to do it yourself. And so I had kind of like a come to Jesus moment with myself of like, how much do I want to do this? Because A, I have really a lot of baggage with performing um, yeah. And then B, there's very real like performance anxiety for me about it of like, you know, the the baggage isn't, it's just like, that's a thing that I'd have to really work on and, and try to kind of come to terms with. And yeah. I wasn't sure that I could. And um, I actually did a specific type of therapy for performance anxiety, a type of therapy called EMDR. Um, they right. take sort of like, it's, it's, it's actually a therapy, I, I believe, for trauma and wow. um, kind of like rewiring your neural pathways to not have the same trauma response to a certain incident. So... I had to like think of times in my past where I'd have to go into auditions and I'd feel like my body would feel like I was six years old again, going into the audition, a nervous fucking wreck. Um, and then trying to create a kind of more calm memory, um, and a more, a place where I'm really, where I feel very peaceful and tranquil and trying to replace that trauma response with that. So that just to kind of bridge that gap a little bit and make it more, um, doable. And that type of therapy helped me tremendously. And then I also think, um, the reality of, of saying words that I really believed in made a huge difference. Um, yeah, your body wasn't going to reject something when it's true and authentic to you. Yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. My my body for so long had felt like I don't want to say li- I don't want to say those lines. And yeah. when I when I was younger, as a, as a performer, I was my character was very sarcastic. And what people didn't know, what the public didn't know, was that I was just like being sarcastic about the lines that I didn't want to say. Like any line that I was saying was me kind of being like fuck this about that yeah. line. Well, um, but I you know I think that worked for that, but it doesn't work for anything that's you know that's has any heart to it. I don't think. Um, so that, so that was kind of its own journey was like the, per, was the performance anxiety piece. And then also realizing that I had so much baggage about needing to be perfect and needing to, to be on my mark and do everything just right from, from youth. Um, yeah. that instead I, 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 my therapist suggested that I switch the goal to something else, something that's not so tied into my previous experience of acting. So I made it to kind of connect with the audience and, mm. When I say that made a world of difference, I mean, it made like a complete 180 um, to my experience of it. I felt I I would find a couple people in the audience who were just very empathetic and really giving a lot emotionally. And I would, you know, say portions of the the various monologues kind of to them. And it really, really helped to feel like, oh, it's not about me. It's about connecting. It's about connection. It's about the experience with somebody else. And I need somebody else for that and feeling like it was okay to need somebody else for that and to, to just, I could then be vulnerable as opposed to just being, you know, completely stuck in myself because of thinking that I needed to be perfect or whatever. It, it completely changed my view on performing. 
Wow. Totally, totally changed but that's, it. But that's so deeply profound because it's like you're trying to kind of heal all of these kind of deep-rooted wounds, detrimental neural pathways that have been carved out because of your childhood acting. Yes. But it's your own story that is allowing you to do that. It's, again, it's kind of harnessing your, what's happened to you and making it something that's going to be good for you as opposed to bad. Yes, absolutely. And I think there was, you know, also an element of being seen or validated as myself that I think was important yeah. to my healing where, um, you know, part of the experience of child acting is that I was really known as a character and I was so used to hearing myself referred to as a character and nobody means any harm by that. No, no fan of the shows that I was on, like is trying to be mean. I totally get that, but it's just, they just saw me as that. And that wasn't who I was. And, um, and I was really scared. I was scared that I'd go out there and people would just be like, Sam fried chicken or like yelling comments that I'd heard so much in my past. Um, and to be so, you know, received and validated by them and for people afterward to be, you know, they'd come up to me and share some element of their own story and it would lead to this just kind of like opening um, and this, yeah. this, this openness and this, um, what felt like, I hate the word healing. I feel like it's so corny, but it felt, um, it just felt really, it felt nice and it felt, it felt good and it felt like just so different than what I was used to in my past, honestly. Constructive. Constructive. So much better. I'm going to use it every time I think of the word healing. Thank That's you. That's the one. That's the one. That's um, the one. Can I ask you, before I let you go, Jeanette, what and where are you at at the moment in your journey? And I know it's a journey when it comes to grief and your mom. Like, where do you stand with her right now? These days, I'm able to miss her in a way that's just like missing her. That's not complicated. You know, initially it was just really intense grief. And then accepting the abuse was an angry grief. I mean, like rage. It was, I would miss her and then I'd want to fucking throw something across the room. I'd feel so like, how can I miss this person who abused me? How can this exist? How do I reconcile these two parts of me where there's one part of me that longs for her and then the realer part of me that just longs for the person she never was that I like pretended I needed her to be as a child like there was this whole other mourning layer um that now I just I, I don't know if it's I'm sure it's some combination of you know almost 10 years in therapy now and and you know and and writing the book or the one person show I'm sure all that's kind of played a factor but I feel like I'm able to just miss her. You know, I, I went to Disneyland a couple of weeks ago and saw the fireworks and she really liked the fireworks. And I just thought like, oh, I, I miss my mom. And um, yeah, and like it honestly makes me a little emotional. It just, feel, it just feels like it's nice to be at that place. And also I, I'm, I'm quick to give myself credit. You know, my therapist has yes. really recommended yeah. that I do that of like, yeah. you, you've earned that. That's not something that she, you know, granted you like that's something that you yeah. you really you worked got for so yourself. hard yeah to get yeah. yeah yeah and can I ask how your brothers are and have your brothers read the book two of my brothers have read the book um okay. my oldest brother has not and um and I wish he would I totally understand that you know he 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 said that he doesn't want to like revisit the trauma um yeah. but I just think it'd be really healing for him um, if I can be so bold, he might he might come round if the other ones have read it. You know, I hope so. And honestly, yeah. it was the, it was the I'm most surprised that he uh, he of of the three of them has has not read it. That surprised me the most. Um, it's my oldest brother, and sort of he he and I. I mean, I, I I love all of them and have a very special relationship with each of them. But just he was the one who you know really took care of me when my mom was ill the first time, and he really kind of stepped yeah. into that that dad role. 
but my brother dustin and scotty they both live kind of nearby i have three nieces now um and i love them so much and watching my brothers with them let me tell you is a beautiful profound experience they're such good dads those little girls love them so much they're so seen by their fathers um and i'm just seeing i'm seeing these little girls go about the world just like being who they are and being authentic and being free and it's like the most the most special experience yeah yeah well listen i i'm so happy i got a chance to talk to you and i'm so grateful to you for for this thank you so much jeanette thank you i really appreciate your thoughtfulness and and hope that we can meet in person one day and 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 have a conversation and and a coffee i would love to Thank you so much to Jeanette, such a smart and funny and generous guest. She also mentioned she's doing more writing, which is fabulous news. Now, you may have seen that I have started a book club on TikTok. And this week we are discussing Jeanette's book, I'm Glad My Mum Died, which is available everywhere. So if you haven't read it, do and get involved in the book club on TikTok. I'd like to discuss it more with you. Let's hear what you think. Every month we're going to be discussing a new book on TikTok. So if you love reading, um, go and check us out on TikTok. Now, thank you so much for listening to Changes. I'm so gassed to be up and running with this new series. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe to Changes on whatever platform you listen on. And please also share this podcast on social media. Share it to all your friends and family, anyone who you know who's read the book, obviously, um, and anyone who just loves a good story. We will be back next week, releasing episodes every Monday on Changes in 2023. Changes is produced by Louise Mason through DIN Productions. Until then. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.